All right. Praise God. Please take your Bibles. We're going through 1 Timothy. And we're in chapter 1. We're going to cover about five verses or so. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we slow down on, on one verse, verse 12. And we talked about that at some length. And now I want to pick it up a little bit with this unit of thought that Paul is sharing. We could have gone all the way from 12 to verse 17 last time, but I really wanted to camp out on verse 12 and talk about how the Lord empowers us as Christians for service, amen? But I'm going to, uh, if you look at the, you know, the CD later or what have you, or the, uh, you know, the message online, it'll probably say verses 13 through 17, because we covered verse 12, but I want to pick it up at verse 12, even though we won't really get into exegesis of that, because that's in last study, but it helps with Paul's unit of thought here. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me into service. So he's giving the Lord thanks for putting them into service. He considered Paul faithful. Faithfulness isn't a work there. It's a godly response to God's grace. And he put Paul into service. And we looked at that last time, but now look at verse 13. Hey, Josh, can you turn down your music, bro? That's like really bad, bro. It's really loud, huh? Okay, you know what? I shouldn't draw attention to that. When the waves are shifting and look like you might sink, you just keep your eyes on Jesus, right? So, uh, Lord, we just pray you work that out somehow so it's not every Wednesday night like that. Your, to your glory, Father. May we speak to them in love and see what you do. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, Paul said he was formerly a blasphemer. So he says God's given them this grace and strengthened him and uh, put him into service, even though he says, I was formerly a blasphemer. Well, that's not a good deal. And a persecutor, he was a persecutor of the church, a blasphemer of Christ, a persecutor of the church, and a violent aggressor. He was violent to the point of having people killed. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Man, there's a lot to unpack in these verses. So I hesitated to go through all these verses, but all the way through 17 and, and do them the kind of justice I like to do a passage when I go through it. But I think we're going to be fine um, and you know, we'll be out of here, you know, hopefully at 8.15 where you can fellowship and so forth. But uh, I'm going to say the main things that I feel should be said. I've already crossed a few things out, prayed about the message and so forth. And uh, he said I was formerly this blasphemer. Now, Paul is giving his testimony here. And the name of this message is How to Give Your Testimony. And there's nuggets through here that should encourage each and every one of us as to how we are to share our testimony. And by the way, thank you, Jesus. You don't just want to pray, you also want to give thanks. <laughs> but you thank him even if the trial doesn't go away as I preach. Amen? So we're still thankful, Lord, that we have the opportunity to share your word. <laughs> Amen. What's that, bro? I hope they don't, you guys don't hear that in the live stream. But either way, just tune into the word. We're good. Uh, praise God. So it's interesting. He says he's all these things, and the Lord forgave him, you know, and showed mercy upon him because of his unbelief, you know. The unbelief didn't mean that he could, uh, you know, had a free ride. Or I should say he did it ignorantly in unbelief, right? Didn't mean he had a free ride. He wasn't accountable for sin. He was, he was doomed without God showing grace to him. But it's interesting Paul gives his testimony throughout the book of Acts. We read him before King Agrippa. Read a few different times in the book of Acts where he gives his testimony 
That's how he got saved. And you remember, he was Saul of Tarsus, you know? He was persecuting the church, having Christians killed. Yet God chose to demonstrate his patience, his mercy, his love, his grace on Paul for a very, very special reason. Not only to save Paul, but as he unfolds this, this is so instructive to us. And by the way, let's keep the context in mind. It's interesting, uh, some commentators will point out that some commentator says it just doesn't really make sense as to why Paul just goes off on this. I almost look at it like a rant. Like Paul just goes off on this rant and his testimony. It doesn't seem to fit. And, uh, and it's amazing because when I, when I was, uh, and I saw that, and you know, it, it's in, you know, commentators state that. And when I saw that, I was like, wow. <laughs> That's funny because I never had a problem with Paul stating that right here. And the, and the more I focused on 1 Timothy and looked at it, the more it fits so beautifully. And you'll see that as this unfolds. Keep in mind, he's coming against, he's correcting false doctrine here at the church at Ephesus. He's left Timothy there to make sure they don't teach false doctrines. He's warning specifically about those who are misusing the law of Moses and don't even understand what they're talking about or how, you know, they're misusing the law of Moses because they're treating believers who are under the new covenant as though they have to keep the old covenant when the old covenant, the law of Moses said, was given for sinners, Right? not for the righteous, and that these men are, have these kind of like, you know, spec, speculations about mythology and so forth. They don't really understand truth. And what Paul is saying right here is, right here he's saying salvation comes through the gospel. He's given himself as a testimony that he doesn't seek to relate to God through the law of Moses anymore, but he relates to God through Christ, through the salvation that comes through Christ. And there's a lot of interesting little things that point back to this being exactly what he's doing here. I'll point a couple of them out as we go on. But he's, remember the contrast is, he's contrasting salvation by law right now with salvation by grace and holding himself up as exhibit A, as the chief of sinners, as he states he is in this passage, who's received God's grace, who's received, received God's mercy and his love. So he says uh, uh, in other parts of his testimony, he really is humble about not meriting any kind of favor from God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he always emphasizes his sin, but then God's grace. Did you notice that? Here he talks about being the, the, you know, the chief of sinners, but he talks about being saved by God's grace as well. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we just read from Corinthians and from Timothy, now Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for all my, or for my ancestral traditions. So he says he was, in his former manner of life, he was persecuting the church beyond measure, beyond measure, trying to destroy it. So he was, uh, he was a religious inquisitor. He was seeking and trying to destroy the church. He states that that was his mission, to destroy Christianity. Of course, that was impossible because he said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's quite interesting in, Galat in Ephesians now, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So what he had done in his rebellion against God the one, the true Messiah, he calls himself the chief of sinners or the foremost of sinners, calls himself the least of the apostles, 
calls himself uh, the least of the saints. Uh, Paul wasn't into this high self-esteem gospel. He was into being real with who God is and who we are and our utter need of God's grace. In fact, Paul got to the point where he recognized he couldn't even keep God's law. And in Romans 7, he gives another part of his testimony where he says he cried out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He, he came to a point of despair, like how can I be saved? And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus, amen, and did an incredible work in his life where Paul went from becoming the church's greatest, you know, the greatest blasphemer against Christ at that time to one of the greatest believers ever. He went from being uh, a militant, you know, man trying to seek to destroy the church. He went from a, a persecutor, the church's greatest persecutor at the time, to becoming the church's greatest missionary. Quite a transformation, amen? That's mind-blowing when you think about Paul's life. I have a message I did a few years back called The Conversion of Saul, the Terrorist. Uh, we look at, he was basically a terrorist against Christianity and as an evidence of the resurrection. That was a resurrection message because Paul's life is such a powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now it's interesting because he says here that he was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer, okay? And it's interesting because blasphemy is defamation of God's name. It's, it's to defame God and who he is. And Paul, when he realized that Christ is God in the flesh, risen from the dead, he realized, wow, I was blaspheming God. In fact, blasphemy was very, very serious sin. You were put to death for it under the Mosaic law. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Wow. And that's considered such a serious sin because right there at the end of 1 Timothy, the last couple, look at the last verse. He speaks of certain guys, blasphemers, false teachers that used to perhaps be among their own disciples or leadership because he said Paul prophesied that among their own selves, the elders when he's addressing them, they will speak perverse things and draw disciples after themselves. Well, he says in verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to what? Not to blaspheme. Blasphemy is a very serious thing. And Paul was a blasphemer. And it's interesting because he, now this is what's interesting about Paul. He wasn't only a blasphemer, but he was also trying to get Christians who following Jesus to blaspheme Christ too. That was part of his mission to destroy the church. Go to Acts chapter 26, and we see him before King Agrippa. And when he's before King Agrippa, we read something very extraordinary. He's, you know, giving his testimony, which I said he does that a few times in the book of Acts. And don't underestimate the power of your testimony, guys. Use your testimony when you're witnessing. Everybody has a great testimony. Anybody, like this blind man, all he said is, I once was lost, or I once was blind, but now I what? I see. That, that caused a great commotion. And when you let people know that you're once lost because everyone who's uh, saved right now is once lost, that's a powerful testimony, however it happened. Amen? And you came to Christ, and now you see, and you've been made a new creation. That's a beautiful, powerful thing, you guys, to become a new creation in Christ. So go to Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11. You're probably there by now. 
So then I thought to myself that I had to go to uh, do many things hostile to the name of Jesus Christ. So that we see some of the blasphemy. He was hostile, not just speaking, but doing things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did to Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons. So Paul went about, you know, <laughs> finding Christians and locking them up, having them imprisoned, right? Having received authority from the chief priest. So Paul was receiving authority, letters of authority from the chief priest. But also, he says, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So when they didn't just lock them up, then when they voted, boom. Many believe Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, and that's what gave him a vote, uh, Jewish council, and that he would vote as of the Pharisees, and he'd cast his vote against them. So his vote, who knows, sometimes maybe it just was by one, just by Paul's vote, but he's the one that brought him off in there in the first place to be in prison and then be put to death. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to what? Blaspheme, do you see that? I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So now it's kind of interesting because it became personal with Paul. Because he became enraged at these Christians. And when they went from one city to the next, he would pursue them, trying to hunt them down, imprison them, and have them put to death. That's the guy that's writing First Timothy, guys. It's pretty heavy when you think about it, man. And uh, I just, Paul's testimony is so, so powerful. So he states that he was a blasphemer and he was a persecutor, he says, and a violent aggressor. So he was a blasphemer. We've seen that. He was a persecutor. We're seeing that. He was a violent aggressor. Three things that he states that he was. And then go to Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And we see uh, a little bit more of how Paul is this... Uh, well, violent aggressor, a persecutor and violent aggressor. And when you get there, notice the context here is Stephen. And Stephen is saying, how long will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? You can resist the Holy Spirit. God's given us uh, a measure of free will. And you can resist his call on your life. And we read in Acts 7, 58. We'll just go to the very end of this deal here. Very, very sad. It says, when they had driven him, that is Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes because they're going to stone him. They don't want to get blood all over their robes. So they, you know, stripped down to their underwear. They laid their robes at the feet of who? A young, a young man named Saul. Now, why would they put him at Saul's feet? Because keep in mind, he has letters to go and drag people off to prison. In this case, they're not even, you know, they're stoning them right there. And then it says, uh, you know, verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Kind of cool because he follows Jesus' example. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Amen. And if you read the whole testimony there he sees Jesus stand at the right hand of the father which I love that because that's another fulfillment of Jesus words because Jesus said if you deny me before men I'll deny you before my father and the angels in heaven amen but if you confess me before men I'll what confess you before the father is Jesus standing in heaven t normally no he's seated at the right hand of the father 
I believe he stood up, you know, and he's honored Timothy, or he honored, I should say, Stephen in this case. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, there's no chapter breaks in, the, in, in Luke's letter uh, or in the book of Acts, except in our translations. He says, Saul, who had become the apostle Paul, Saul was what? In hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Of course, Paul would chase them down after that, right? Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, destroying it, entering house after house. He's entering house after house. You know, come on, man. We should be all about sharing the gospel with people. And not afraid to go door to door, not afraid to go witnessing and sharing the gospel. Because Paul is going house to house to have Christians killed. We should be all about witnessing and excited about sharing Jesus to see people saved. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. Dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So this is just amazing. Go to, uh, well, before we go to another place, I just want to... you really consider how serious this is, how seriously wicked Paul was, okay? And that's why the next part of the verse, which we'll look again at 1 Timothy 1, 13, yet I was what? I was shown mercy because they acted ignorantly in unbelief. Wow. So showing mercy, of course, justice is getting what you deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve, Right? And then God gives us grace instead of mercy, what we don't deserve. So uh, what's interesting here is he says something quite interesting. He receives this mercy. He says because of his unbelief, did unbelief. And we have to keep in mind that uh, the scriptures talk about in the, book, in the Old Testament deliberate sin and presumptuous sin and so forth, or, and ignorant sin, so to speak. And sin is sin when you become knowledgeable of the law. But some are more aware that they're breaking God's law than others. Some have an intuitive witness of conscience to one degree or another. Some have the direct witness of the Holy Spirit about what they're doing. Uh, the Pharisees, they weren't going to receive forgiveness because uh, as long as they continued to act in disbelief when they had all the evidence before them to believe. Jesus did a lot of miracles right before their eyes. Right? Jesus gave a parable that referred to at least some of the Pharisees. And in that parable, when he discussed uh, you know, the parable of the landowner, there's a couple of parables like this, but he talked about uh, how this landowner went and sent you know, his messengers and they, they killed his messengers. Then the, he said, I'll send my son to talk to them. Right? Sends his son and the, those who were you know, in the vineyard, trying to, you know, the managers of the vineyard while he was gone, said, let us kill the son. Then we'll get the inheritance from his father. So some of them were calculatingly knowing. In fact, Nicodemus said, we know that you are of God. He was a leader among the Pharisees because no one could do these miracles unless he's from God. So some of them understood who he was. Others didn't understand fully who he was. And to those who understood who he was, Jesus warned them in Matthew 12 because they couldn't explain away his miracles. You know, you don't read them saying, well, these weren't really miracles. They were undeniable. So what did they do? They said, well, these were done by the devil. You know, he's possessed by Beelzebub. 
That's how he's doing these miracles, right? And that's in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus says, All uh, manner of sins shall be forgiven the sons of man, and all manner of blasphemy. Uh, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has neither forgiveness in this world or the world to come. Uh, you have it, and it goes on, it says, verse 28, verse 29 says, because uh, they said he had a demon. So their blasphemy was attributing to the Holy Spirit, attributing to the devil the works of the Holy Spirit, the miracles of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't as though that Jesus didn't die for all sin. Okay, I understand what's going on here. This is also in Matthew chapter 12, because there Jesus accuses them of committing the unpardonable sin, blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Now, this is tricky. There's a lot of controversy regarding this. Uh, you know, I've had people come to me. Have I committed this sin? You know, I had one young guy. Well, I was young too. I was going to a church when I was a, a new believer. Probably started around that church like sometime late when I was 18 or maybe 19. And a guy that I met there uh, was involved in a lot of junk, you know. And uh, he be at the church, then he'd be gone. Be at the church, be gone. And you know how young people could be sometimes, and I was young too, but he just basically set out to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He got involved in Satanism, went to prison, and he said he was reading the Satanic Bible and trying to do all the rituals, but he couldn't find a ritual against the Holy Spirit. So he specifically lit some candles and made up his own ritual. And he said at that point, and I'm not saying what his account is accurate, this was his subjective account, uh, when he did it, he said he felt the Holy Spirit, as he put it, rip out of him, you know, which I personally doubted that the Holy Spirit was in him at that point, personally, but that was his experience. And uh, he came a number of times, and, you know, I, I mean, I tried to minister to him, encourage him as a young Christian in the Scripture, and I said, if I was you, I would just seek God anyway, even if you don't think you could be saved. I would seek him anyway. This is uh, because if because eternity is forever, man, you know? And what happened was quite interesting. I told him that, you know what? Uh, he said, I need a pile of manure, he's a different word, this high, if I could be saved. And I prayed about it, that God would give me an answer to understand, what about these Pharisees? So I went back to the text, and I saw in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus told these Pharisees that the sin they'd committed that they wouldn't receive either forgiveness in this world or the world to come. Pretty scary verses, would you agree, right? And, uh, well, it's quite interesting because then I noticed what Jesus said to them a few verses later in verse 33. To the same people he just said that you, about the, he told them that they committed the unpardonable sin. Then he says to them, either make the tree good or make the tree evil because the tree will be made, known by its fruit. I'm like, whoa. So next time I talk to, actually I called him up and I, I said, hey, on his machine, I said, hey, right here, Jesus makes it really, really clear. You know, these people that he said uh, couldn't be saved uh, in this world or the world to come or forgiven. Uh, it seems as though this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a settled state of rebellion and, and digging your feet in the ground. And, and the reason you can't be forgiven if you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit is guess why? The Holy Spirit is the one who testifies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, amen? He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, John chapter 16, right? So if he's doing that and he's giving you evidence of, and he's drawing you, he's giving you evidence of who the Messiah is and you're speaking against him, right? And you're resisting him and even speaking against him and saying this must be the devil. There's no way you can be saved because the very agent that draws you to salvation is being grieved and even blasphemed. 
However, however, he goes on to say, either make the tree good or evil. In other words, guess what? You don't have to die like this in this kind of state of blasphemy against God's spirit. You can go to read it yourself. It's in, in Matthew 12. He's talking to the Pharisees. He talks about how they committed their part of sin. Then he gives them a choice. He had no answer for that. He admitted it. He goes, I don't know how to answer that. I go, man, if you're going to eat a pile of manure this high, take it and run with it. Go with it, right? Seek the Lord, you know, uh, while he may be found. Because guys, guess what, guys? You don't want to resist God when he's speaking to you and put him out of your heart and out of your mind because you can get to the point where the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify the Son of God afresh. You can get to a point where your heart becomes so hardened. And that's after Hebrews 3, a few chapters earlier, he says, don't harden your heart to where you no longer hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, when people start to rebel against the Lord, the Lord is still speaking to them. He's still calling them to repent. He's still convicting them. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, my voice, let him open the door. I'll come into him. He's talking to the church of Laodicea. Believers, right, who've jettisoned him from the church. But he's still knocking. He that hears the knock. He that hears the voice. In other words, guess what? The voice and the knock are there. But you can tune him out. And the Bible says that he that continues to rebel against the Lord and is often reproved, will be cut off without remedy. So, but some people, okay, too many people, get to the point where they harden their heart so much that they never come to repentance. And it's impossible to renew them to get repentance because they continue to crucify Christ afresh. Now, someone can have a change of heart. That's why we're seeing with Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter 1, verses, verses, verse 20, they've been had over to Satan, so they might what? Learn not to blaspheme. By the way, Paul may be contrasting himself here with the false teachers, that he was ignorant, and that might be why he's emphasizing that. He was forgiven, right? He received the forgiveness because he did ignorant and unbelief. belief, and then when the evidence was put before him, man, boom, he received the Lord. Where these false teachers have the light of the gospel now, right, uh, amongst them, and they're resisting what Paul's saying, and they're blaspheming God's truth. And he's letting them know you can go too far, to where you just dig your feet in the ground and then you never have a, a, heart, a, ch a change of heart. The good news about this is, is as scary as it could be, you guys. The good news is this, and is that if you're wondering, man, will the Lord receive me? You know, have I gone too far? Will he accept me back? Well, this very text we're studying shows you that, you know, whosoever will may come, amen? amen. Because Paul calls them the foremost of all sinners, the worst of them, to show that anybody could come. The question isn't, can you come? The question is, will you come? Don't harden your heart to where you don't hear his voice. That's you that chooses not to hear his voice, not him. He's the one that continues to speak and continues to knock. Isn't that good news? Amen. So when you're counseling a believer or even a non-believer who thinks, man, it's, I, I can't be saved. I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 12 and say, hey, look, it's very foreboding. Very scary passage there, no doubt about it, man. But guess what? Look at verse 33. He tells the same people, either make the tree good or evil. Make a choice. You have a choice. And in Hebrews, they're told that they could refuse to harden their hearts. Or in Revelation 3, they can basically open the door. Now, verse uh, 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. 
See, even though he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, a violent aggressor, three things he calls himself, he says the grace of the Lord was what? More than abundant. More than abundant. These are beautiful words, guys. Grace, it's a beautiful acronym if we use that. I love the acronym from grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Amen. It's beautiful. That's, that's what grace is, man. God's riches at Christ's expense. What Jesus went through to save us. It's, it's a beautiful deal. Now, you guys, we as Christians take grace for granted a lot. We do. And we don't realize that around the world, in the world religions, people are striving to try to be saved in some way. And they're doing it by their works. And they're trying to be saved by, the, you know, being a good person or what have you. And we should be so grateful because we can't be saved that way that we've been saved. And that's one th- reason Paul talks about this. In fact, in Buddhism, if you want to be saved in Buddhism, you have to keep the noble eightfold path, right? And according to Buddha, in the uh, Dhammapada, which is the, the sayings of Buddha, he declares, quote, listen to what he says. Tell me, is this biblical? Purity and impurity depend on oneself. No one can purify another. Is that true? No one can purify another? No, because Jesus purifies us from sin, amen? amen. In fact, listen to 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, as Jesus, we have fellowship one with another, right? And his blood cleanses us or purifies us. NASB has purifies. Purifies us from all sin. Amen? Amen. He doesn't purify us from some, some sin. Jesus purifies us from all sin. So in Buddhism, you have to purify yourself. Amen? That's, that's, that's false teaching. That's unbiblical. That's work salvation. Buddhism is a lie. The scriptures tell us that Jesus purifies us and cleanses us from all sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. In Islam, salvation is based on one's good works. It's based on a person's good works outweighing their bad works. Now, when you look at scriptures and all of our <laughs> good works as non-believers are like filthy rags and there's none righteous, no, not one, and all of sin comes short of the glory of God, it doesn't look very good. In fact, in the Quran, in Surah, Chapter 23, verses 102 and 104, we read this. They whose balances, because they're going to be weighed on judgment day, good works and bad works are put in different sides of the scale. They shall be heavy. Uh, They whose balances shall be heavy shall be blessed. But they whose balances shall be light in good works, they shall lose their soul abiding in hell forever. So in Islam... Your good works, just you have to outweigh the bad works. And then even then, you don't even know for sure. Muhammad didn't even know if he was saved at certain points in his teachings. So it's interesting because we're seeing here now, Paul, like I said, he's showing that salvation is by grace here. That he was a horrible sinner, but he's saved by grace. In contrast to these guys who are teaching that you got to keep the Mosaic law. And then listen to, you remember Ephesians. Look at Paul's gospel throughout, which is, he calls it his gospel. He calls it the gospel of God, gospel of Christ. But it's, just, it's, it's the one in true gospel. There's only one true gospel. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're familiar with those passages. We're saved by grace through what? Through faith. Not of what? Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. I love a couple of verses I like just as much as those, that verse, or those verses on being saved by grace apart from works is 
2 Timothy 1.9. Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. He didn't save you for anything you've done. That's what he says. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. I love what Paul says also in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's so wrong for us to think that we somehow earn our salvation. You got to watch out for that because we are wired as human beings to just, you know, achieve. And we like, we like the whole the pride thing gets in the way. You got to humble yourself. You got to humble yourself and say, man, I can't do anything to earn salvation. I deserve judgment. Paul knows he deserved wrath and judgment. And we have to get there to that point. It's hard for people to do that. I know before I was a Christian, Christianity was foolishness to me because I didn't want to think, you know, the cross was, was foolishness to those who were perishing. And then when I came to realize, to, to realize man, I'm a terrible sinner. <laughs> I, I deserve judgment. And God got up real close to me and, real, and revealed, revealed to me, man, I'm doomed. It made me realize, man, I need to cry out for the mercy of God. And it's interesting because when you look at this passage here, you see what's happening here, it totally removes any merit because Paul was the least deserving of grace. And I don't even like to say that because nobody deserves grace at all, amen? But he's, maybe the better way to put that is Paul was of all people most condemnable, okay? Because he was, he was as he says in this passage, the chief of sinners, we have to realize it's not our doing. We have to humble ourselves. Reminds me of the old rooster. Every morning he'd get up, he was the only rooster on the farm, and he would crow like crazy, and then the sun would come up, and the other farm animals got around him. They started, man, this is amazing that you have the power to bring the sun up every morning, you know? It's amazing. And they were just blown away by the ability of this rooster. And every morning, man, they would celebrate the rooster and rejoice and and, and his power, and they practically worshiped this rooster because he'd crow, and then the sun would come up. And then guess what? One day, the rooster was feeling kind of sick and thought, man, I, so, I can't even get up, man. I'm just going to sleep in today. And guess what? The sun still came up, and all the farm animals gathered around and waited for him to get up, and he got up, and they said, you're a fraud. You're a fraud. The sun came out without you crowing, man. It came up. You're a fraud. You made it. And he was really depressed and sad, bummed out for being a liar, bummed out because of being proud. And then all of a sudden he got happy. He thought, I don't bring the sun up, but that's a good thing. I'm thankful it doesn't depend on me because I can rely on the sun coming up whether I get up in the morning or not. And that's how we ought to be. We ought to be, praise God. We can't save ourselves, but that's a good thing. We just got to humble ourselves and say, okay, that's a good thing to know that, amen? Because I can rely on Jesus, the son of God who rose up from the dead and conquered the grave and had paid for our sins, amen? And we have salvation in Christ. So it's important that we're humble. And Paul was <laughs> a violent aggressor, as he say, said, trying to destroy the church, breathing out threats and having Christians killed. And man, now look at him. He goes from blasphemer to the greatest missionary ever. Amazing. Now look at the next part of that verse. It says, the grace of our Lord was what? The grace of the, our Lord was more than abundant. And the Greek word there is hooper pleonazen. 
And uh, it's one word. In fact, the, the English, you know, uh, what it says uh, was more than abundant. It actually translated from that one Greek word, which actually means superabounding. So yeah, Paul was the chief of sinners. Bad dude, right? Evil, wicked man, deserving incredible judgment. But God's grace superabounded. Okay, I won't take the time, but you can crisscross all the, there's a lot of things you can crisscross actually here. I've seen it diagrammed in a few places. It's quite, quite interesting, uh, the, the contrast from Paul's sinful life to God's grace. It gets a little technical, so I'm not going to get into that, but I will point a couple of those things out. And one is that he's the chief of sinners, but God's grace super abounded to him. And we have to remember that, guys. I don't care how you say, but man, my sin's been too bad. I don't know if God would have mercy on me. Well, Paul said God's grace superbounded to him, right? And Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, quote, but where sin increased, grace what? Abounded all the more. God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is far greater, superbounding, way beyond your sin, Amen died for the sins of all of us. He died for every one of our sins. I love Romans. It's one of my favorite passages too. Romans 5, 6 and following. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Hallelujah, amen. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his, the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I love that, man. God's grace is super bounding. That passage, you go on to read it, it talks about how we were powerless, or we were helpless, right? We were enemies, we were, we were sinner, sinners, ungodly. All those superlatives that are just kind of, you know, built upon each other, shown us the sinfulness of all of us, not just Paul, you know? Uh, it's, it's quite amazing. Then he shows God's amazing grace. And it's, un, it's important for us to understand the depths of our sin so we can understand the beauty of his grace, amen? If you don't understand your sin and how ugly it is before God, that's high treason against the creator who loved you, made you in his image, and even sent his son to die for you, that you're flinging arrows into the hearts of God when you sin and it grieves his spirit and he's an eternal incredible being that we should be grateful to and obedient to and and we've we become wretches then we won't really understand the beauty of the cross the way we ought to sometimes we need to get before the lord and just say lord you know help me understand your grace more that's something we should cry out over we should pray to the lord about look at uh verse 14b with the faith now what did the lord give him gave him the faith and love which are what found in christ jesus so he mentions grace and then he mentions the faith and the love which are found where? In Christ Jesus. Notice the three things he mentions that he was. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. Here's one of those, you know, opposite things. It's three things he got instead of, instead of getting wrath and judgment and hell, right? God gave him grace, right? Faith and love. These three beautiful things. And by the way, I'm telling you, there's, there's something really heavy going on here. What did Paul say when he's, he warns about these false teachers who are turning, taking God's law of the Old Testament, making it something we need to follow today to be right with God? In the first few verses, in the verses 6 or 7 through 11, what does Paul say in the middle of all that that the goal of true, the true faith is? 
The goal of our instruction is what? Love from a pure heart, right? A good conscience and what? A sincere faith. The goal, right, that we seek to have is love from a pure heart, good conscience, right? And a sincere faith. And if you walk in those things, by the way, and we looked at verse, we did a whole message on, I, I go through a few verses and we stop here once on one verse. And that's one verse we stopped on, verse five. Because that's, that's awesome, man. If you make that one of your life verses, man, I want to live to have love from a pure heart. I want to be like Christ. Realize I don't deserve his love and I want to, God help me have a pure heart full of love. Cleanse my heart, forgive me, and purify me. And then give me a, a good conscience so I go to bed at night knowing that I'm doing your will and not rebelling to you, and a sincere faith where I'm trusting you, and I'm not a double-minded man, and you live like that, your life will be blessed. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You live for Jesus, and God will start adding things to your life that he wants to bless you with. It may not be, look exactly what you want it to look like, but then you need to thank God it doesn't. Because if you mapped it out exactly how you looked at it, I mean, there's not enough sky as parchment and not enough liquid in the ocean if you made it ink for you in enough time in all eternity for you to write a better plan that God already has for you. No doubt about it because he's all wise. He's infinite. All we need to do is submit to him and trust him. And that's where faith comes in. But it's kind of interesting to me here because Paul, when he says this is the goal of our instruction, and he includes two of the three things. He includes what? Love, love, love from a pure heart, right? And a sincere faith. Those two things out of the three, right? Those are things that God gave him in Christ Jesus. They're already ours. So that's, I'm saying this all ties together because then he goes on to say after what the instruction is, those three things that, hey, the false teachers are not teaching that. They're not teaching about Christ and being saved by grace by, uh, with unmerited favor apart from keeping the works of the law in the Old Testament. They're not teaching that. They're not teaching about the superabounding grace that Paul is speaking about. Uh, that's what we're seeing Paul emphasize here in contrast to the false teachers. Now keep in mind, this was a personal letter in one respect. He's writing to Timothy. So he's giving Timothy, his young son in the faith, right? A testimony. That's what God's done in me. But also Timothy was supposed to share that with others who were shared with others who were shared with others down to us, amen? So we're supposed to learn from this. And the name of this message I said in the beginning is how to give your testimony. One way you give your testimony is you make it very, very clear that you, that you know it's purely by God's grace that you're saved. And you have to be careful because Paul emphasizes his sin here. But you know what Paul emphasizes more than his sin, though? is God's grace. Sometimes, and it's the wrong way to give a testimony. Sometimes when people give a te testimony, it's almost as though some people, it's like they want to make themselves as bad as they can. And sometimes it sounds like sometimes people kind of rejoice in how bad they were, you know? And they're not even ashamed of it. It's almost like, yeah, I did all these wicked things. It's like... But, and if you just go into that, but you don't talk about what Jesus did in saving you and praise God, you know, this is how I met the Lord and this is how my heart was transformed, you're missing it in your testimony. You want to make sure when you're testifying before people that you also, you want to emphasize your, your lostness, no doubt about it, because you want people to realize, yeah, I was lost, but you really want to emphasize his goodness, his grace, super abounding to you, Amen. And that's what Paul does uh, throughout his letters. He, he talks about his past. He gives his testimony from time to time. But he does it in the context of saying, wow, look how awesome the Lord is and how good he is, amen, in saving me. So it's interesting when you, you, you put this together. Uh, it's quite interesting. And love, the Bible says, is uh, faith works through love, Galatians 5, 6. And, Gal and Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, amen. So God 
We, we simply respond to the gospel. Amen? And God gives us, uh, opens our eyes. Amen? More. You respond to some light, he'll give you more light. Amen? He doesn't believe for you. You're the believer. To say that he believes for you, then being a believer would be a misnomer. He doesn't believe for you. But guess what? Objectively speaking, you couldn't believe and put your trust in Christ unless it was by his grace. Amen? So on one hand, uh, salvation, uh, uh, saving faith objectively is something that God gifts us and he offers everybody the opportunity to believe. He says, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles, Jesus said, to people that were rejecting him. So he gives them the opportunity to believe. But you must make the choice to put your trust in Jesus. Now, what's amazing to me about Paul's testimony is not only is he exemplifying the grace of God, but he says some really interesting things. Look at verse 15 now. Let's go to verse 15. He says it's a trustworthy statement. Trustworthy statement. Now, five times in the pastoral epistles, you have trustworthy state. This is a trustworthy statement. And that's Paul's way of saying, you better underscore this. This is something you want to repeat. And what does he say? What's this? And he says, deserving full acceptance. Unlike the mythology and the things that the false teachers are going to see, there's always all the contrast I'm trying to point out to you. He's saying this is, this is what you got to receive with full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am what? Foremost of all. And the trustworthy statement is, Christ Jesus came into the world. He is God, right? That's, it's an implication here of the, 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 the incarnation. And he became a man. And he came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Amen? Hallelujah. Of which I, as Paul says, am chief. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen? And what was his objective? 1 Timothy 2.6. It says in 1 Timothy 2.6 that he gave himself, you can look there, he gave himself as a ransom for all. That means he paid for the sins of every person. That's why he came into the world. Now, in what way does Paul, in what way is Paul referring to himself as the chief of sinners? As the foremost of all sinners? What does he have in mind? Well, he can't mean that he was the foremost of all sinners, present tense. It's written in the present tense, like, wow, I'm the foremost of sinners. I mean, he's written like right now. But he's not talking about his life right now. How do we know that? Because over and over again in the book of Acts and elsewhere, he says, I've served God as a Christian with a clean conscience. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. Okay, if he's, if he's the wickedest, he's not the wickedest guy in the world at that point, okay? <laughs> Paul was not the most evil guy on the planet after he got saved. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he talks about this same thing about, uh, you know, uh, he says, brethren, join and follow in my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So Paul is a pattern for holiness. So he's not talking. Well, what's he talking about? The context is there. He says he was a what? A blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a violent aggressor, right? He's talking about his past life. But the closer you get to God, the more you realize how bad you are without him. Amen? How many of you have seen a, 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 a mountain far away? It looks so small. And as you get big, closer to it, you're like, whew. Closer you get to the Lord, the more you realize it. And the closer Paul got to the Lord, the bigger he realized God is. Amen? Amen. And one, one reason is Paul, I believe he felt he was the chief of sinners and was the chief of sinners, is because he persecuted Christians like no one else. Uh, Paul was, uh, you know, a, a, just a religious, you know, uh, terror. 
terrorist. He was hell-bent on killing Christians. His hands were stained with the blood of Christians. Can you imagine him thinking that night at times, the enemy trying to haunt him maybe with different people that blasphemed Christ? Because remember, he was pulling them out of their homes, threatening them with death, having them killed, trying to get them to blaspheme Christ, right? Could you imagine him hearing different people that turned? Now, if you look at church history in the early church, I've read a, a decent portion of it, different people would turn against and blaspheme Christ at times when they were persecuted. And Paul has to live with those memories, right? But I don't think that's the only thing on his mind, although I think that's a very big thing on his mind. In fact, look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts 9, verse 1. Now Saul, this is before he was saved, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from, his, uh, from the, uh, him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he was traveling, and it happened that he was approaching Damascus. He's going to go kill Christians, have them killed, or arrested to be killed. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't just persecuting Christians. He was persecuting Christ. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and I will be told you what you must do. Then uh, the men, it says, who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but, not, but seeing no one. Saul got up from uh, the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and uh, leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And it says, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Paul was... That's, I believe that's why he calls himself the chief of sinners because he was persecuting Christ like no one else, right? Trying to hinder people from sharing the gospel and persecuting Christians and his hands were stained with their blood. And, that, and Christians are Christ's body on the earth. And Jesus says when you mess with his people, you're touching the apple of his eye. You ever have the apple of your eye touched, poked, painful? And Paul was poking Jesus in the eye over and over again, so to speak. So that's why I believe he calls himself the chief of sinners. It wasn't his present state as a, a rebel against God, you know. Uh, he wasn't like the worst sin in the world at that time, but he was prior to being a believer. And I love that Paul states that he was the chief of sinners because this is a very important verse when it comes to evangelism. When you're sharing with the lost, you need to let them know that they can be saved because how many people when you, before they get saved, don't think they can be saved. Think they're too far gone. Think they've gone too far, you know? Jennifer, you gave, man, it was an amazing testimony. Man, a funeral for your husband just, you know, days back. And, you know, uh, I was in tears throughout most of the testimony. A lot of the testimony, I was like, wow. And one thing she shared was that God showed her in his grace, because at first she had a hard time receiving that grace and understanding God's grace. And God, in this wonderful way, opened her eyes to that, I love you. I died for you, you know? And I could relate to that. I could relate to a lot of your testimony in different ways. And I was like, wow, because when I first became a Christian, I didn't know any Christians, and I knew how bad I was, and I knew that I was anti-Christ and stuff. And I was like, will you save me? I didn't have any Christians explaining to me. I opened my Bible, and guess what verses helped me? This was one of the verses that helped me. I'm like, wow, Paul said he's the chief of sinners. 
you know? And, but look at what Paul says there. He go, you know, he says that God saved him. Why? Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy. He tells us the reason he found mercy. It's not the only reason, but it's the main reason. So that in me, as, as the foremost, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might what? Demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that awesome? God saved Paul as the worst sinner, the one who was persecuting him personally, Christ, and his people like no one else, as a trophy of grace to say, if I can save him, I can save anyone. So guess what? When you're giving your testimony, you want to let people know. I'm not coming to you as a, as, a, as a holy Joe, like, man, I'm better than you. I'm coming to you as one that should be damned. I was lost. I don't deserve grace. It's undeservable. It's unmerited favor. God saved me. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. I'm coming to you, bringing you the bread that was given to me, the bread of salvation. And that they, then you want them to say, wow, if God could save that guy, <laughs> or he could save that girl, man, he could save me, you know? You, want to, you know what I'm saying? You want to get them to understand that. And that's part of how you give your testimony is let them know that you've been saved by grace through faith and that it's simply a gift. Paul was a prototype of all sinners. Uh, the Greek word, for example, here, he says as an exhibited, displayed, could be translated exhibited as an example. And the Greek word for example there is hupa tuposin. Oh, I'm sorry, hupa tuposin. It's an uh, omega there, not an omicron. Hupa potosin literally refers to a sketch outline. And it was used, it, Paul's a sketch outline. And one thing that painters would do, and they do this today too, they would sketch before they paint. And they make an outline of what they were gonna paint. Then they'd paint over it. And Paul is saying, guess what? I'm an outline. I'm a picture of what God's done so people could overlay their lives and say, wow, if he was saved, God can save me too, amen? I think, isn't that powerful? Because God wants you to know that he won't reject you. You know the other verse that God used for me? is I was reading through the Gospel of John in John 6, 37. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast away. Because you're in a spiritual war. And the enemy wants to get you to think he's the accuser of the brethren. He works overtime to get you to think that you can't be saved. That you're just the one or the few, one of the few people or one of many or whoever that can't be saved. It's impossible. That's a lie. There's no temptation that's overtaken us or trial that's not common to man. So he uses that one a lot. And you need to accept the word of God. You need to accept the fact that Jesus died for all people, amen, that he's not partial, that he isn't well that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Well, that all be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4, by the way, and come to the knowledge of the truth, amen? So Paul is this amazing prototype, this amazing uh, picture of salvation and God's patience, that the Lord's patient. Romans 2, 4, and Osi says patience. Or Romans 2, 4 says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that God's, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Goes on to say there's no partiality with God. Amen? But you also need to keep this in mind, and this is very important by way of application. You don't want to just apply this to yourself. You know who else to play, you need to apply this to? You and I need to apply this to the non-believer. Sometimes it's hard to, okay, yeah, okay, now, yeah, God would save me. Okay, praise God. But then guess what? He also wants us to recognize that God wants to save non-believers just like you. Amen? And that's why you see Jesus saving Samaritans. 
You see him saving adulterers and, and prostitutes and tax gatherers and all sorts of people. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators or adulterers or homosexuals or effeminate revilers or drunkards and thieves, on and on and on. And he says, and such were what? Some of you. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were, you know, just name it. There, there's a big list there. But he saved you. And he wants, and this is important, you guys, because when we're talking to non-believers, sometimes you can get a cold heart toward non-believers, especially as dark as the world's getting right now. And you could see what the left is doing, and you could just get hard and just, it's us against them, and realize that Jesus died for them too, amen? And I could see myself, I have to admit it, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably be part of that group over there. Guess what? Jesus died for me. He died for them. He loves them. Gave his son for them just like he gave his son for me. Amen? You need to love people. Don't write people. Don't write anyone off. Amen? Because guess who would have been written off first and foremost in the first century? The Apostle Paul. Amen? Amen? Don't write people off. In fact, when Paul got saved, he came to the church with Barnabas after some time, and they were afraid to talk. They were like, that's the guy that was killing the church, persecuting the church. And they had to bring him in, and they eased him in, and then he got accepted. Then he became the greatest missionary in the world. And the person that you're writing off, God may want to use mightily, but I know one thing for sure. He wants to save them. Look at verse 17. Because you're trophy, tro did you realize you're a trophy of God's grace? You're a trophy of God's grace. Amen. And this is important to get. How are you a trophy of God's grace? Because is Paul a trophy of God's grace? Would you say he's a trophy of what Jesus did on the cross? Amen. Yeah. But you're a trophy of God's grace too. Because if God didn't do what he did, you wouldn't be saved. And he did it for you too. He didn't just die for, you know, so, you know 75% of the people's sins here. He died for your sins personally. But of course, when, and, and I love this because there's so many scriptures. Because again, when you look at that verse, it talks about God demonstrated his perfect patience, Paul said, in saving him as the foremost sinners. Aren't you glad he's patient? Far more patient than we are, Amen. And that he was patient with you. And we see that throughout scripture. Psalm chapter 145, verses 8 and 9. It says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Sometimes you think, oh, he's like this guy up in, the, in heaven with a desk. With a, that's how my wife Lisa said, when I, before I got saved, I thought a minute, like, God is like a big stack of papers on a desk. And he's just, you know, busy and everything. And it's, oh, man. And that's, it's easy to do, right? Because what do we have to relate to? But then she realized, wow, how awesome God is, you know? And Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness or devotion. The Lord is good to all. His compassion, his compassion rests over all he has made. Did he make you? His compassion rests over you. He shut up all in his sin that he might have mercy on all. He wants to have mercy on you. He longs to show you mercy. The Bible, there's a verse where God says he longs to show mercy. That's his heart. He's a good God. So don't doubt his love for you. Don't doubt. Now, if he died for you, he says, how much more, right? If he saved you, how much more will, will he bless you? It says, it goes on to say in Romans. He wants to bless you. And I love this, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, is patient toward you, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And right after it says in Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches and the kindness of his tolerance and his patience, not knowing it's the kindness of God leads to repentance? Right after that, I mean, I mean, how do we get saved then? I mean, he loves everybody. He wants all to be saved. Guess what? His love, his mercy, it's limitless. 
It's offered to all, right? He's impartial, says the Jew first and also the Greek, and there's no partiality with God. Well, how come all aren't saved? Because the very next verse after he says that says kindness that leads to repentance, and don't you know that it says kindness that leads you to repentance? He says in verse five, or do you think lightly of the riches and the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it's this kindness that leads you to repentance? And then he goes on to say that those who are rejecting him are suffering, are, 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 uh, are treasuring up wrath from themselves in the day of wrath because they, re, they refuse to turn to the Lord. And what's the deal there? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 now. And look at what it says. This, this verse to me is pretty powerful. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Oh, we, well, 9 and 10, because it has another trustworthy statement. There's five trustworthy statements in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. So we might as well read verse 9 too. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For as for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of who? He's a Savior of all men. How is Jesus a Savior of all men? He died for all. Absolutely, bro. Good job, Joseph. He died for all. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God was in Christ Jesus, not holding their sins against them, right? Reconciling the world to himself. Well, look what it says, though. He's a Savior of all men, but look, lots of next clause. Especially, it says, those who what? Especially of believers. So on one hand, provisionally, he died for all to save all. But efficaciously, it's only effective on those who believe because salvation is by grace through faith. You must put your trust in the Lord. You must turn to him. God doesn't will that anyone be saved, but all would come to repentance because he goes on to say, in your unrepentant heart, you reject this kindness that is supposed to lead you to salvation. He gives you a choice. He doesn't want automatons and robots. He wants genuine believers. So it's important, you guys. It's so important this, this message is so important because you need to rest in his love for you. Amen? But you also need to rest and recognize that he loves others. I mean, I tell the story sometime because it was, it's, it's a hilarious story, but it tested my... Now, I have, I have all people ought to, because of how I was a horrible guy. I just was so, you know, anti-God, anti-Christianity. And my friends say, you know, my friend Steve Riley, he grew up with me. He goes, you know, yeah, you, you know, you did bad, we all did bad things. He goes, you were always a nice guy. Well, to him, I seemed like a nice guy. But in my heart, there was an antagonism I had toward the creator, not wanting to be ruled. And I knew that. I didn't know what it was until it was revealed that guess what? I was shutting out the light and I was fighting against it in my life, writing songs against God, all kinds of stuff. But when I was a Christian and became a Christian, I should be very tolerant of those who are trolls on the internet, who are non-believers, who are antagonists to Christ. I should be, right? But I battle with that sometimes. I, and my flesh does. Sometimes I get like, what do you say about my Jesus? You know? <laughs> like, and I have, to, I have to remember, you know, that wait a minute, minute man. Uh, I was lost too. I was really messed up. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about how, how the Jews hinder the gospel from being preached. He says, the wrath of God is on them to the uttermost. I'm like, whoa. And guess what? Paul was in that very group. He was leading that ring, that, that, that mob, right? Trying to hinder the gospel. And Paul knows that. 
And Paul, Paul, Paul knows that Jesus, he says he would give his own life if his own countrymen could be saved. The very ones he's talking about there. So on one hand, yeah, we recognize that rebellion is evil and it deserves judgment and God's wrath is on those who reject Christ to the uttermost. But we also recognize that wrath should be on us. It's by his grace that we're saved. And the same atonement that he suffered for us on the cross, same death he died for us on the cross, he did for his, all of us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us, it says. We were his enemies. Jesus said, if you want to be like your father in heaven, you must love your enemies because your father caused the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and he loves his enemies. So we want to be full of mercy. And you know what, Paul, and, and, and the story I was mentioning is that, you know, some of you probably heard it, but we were sharing the gospel on Third Street in Highland and, uh, with Doug, right? Doug, we'd go to, to Gower where Doug lived, off, get off of Gower, off the 101 and we were on uh, Third Street in Highland there by sunset and, and we're preaching the gospel and this Satanist came up and, and Satanism was really popular in the late 80s and early 90s. And it was just really growing with all the heavy metal bands. And, and I'm like 20 feet, 15 feet from my wife because we're like straight and we're just on the street just passing out. And all of a sudden I see this guy hopping up and down with, you know, he's, he's, he's uh, using the uh, devil horns and stuff. And, and I was going to do the devil horns and say this is what he did. But I know someone will try to take that picture and say, look at what the pastor's doing from the pulpit. <laughs> See, I told you this guy's bad. I go, no, no, I was mimicking the guy. So anyway, he was doing that, right? And then he was spitting at her feet. And I literally, I went over there, man. And the guy is probably about 95 pounds soaking wet, okay? And he's jumping around like a little imp demon, you know? I'm like, whoa. And I get over there and I go, hey, that's my wife. Don't be spitting near her feet, you know? And then he was still dancing around. He stopped spitting, but he's still dancing around. And I'm like, I had to pray. Because right then I didn't feel like saying, you know what, Jesus loves you so much. I didn't feel real compassionate, you know. And I was like, I'm just being honest. I was like, Lord, this guy's really irritating me. But I had to pray. Okay, Lord, help me see the lenses of grace. And just don't do anything. Don't get in the flesh. It's the devil trying to push your buttons. And I was like, Lord, help me. And guess what? I'm not saying he sent the Calvary. But man, that's when the boom boxes were really big and the rap music had just come out and there was a bunch of these black guys walking and a big giant one in front of him walking and he was huge. I'm a big guy, but he's, my size are bigger, right? And he's like, boom, ba boom, ba And then I don't know how he heard that guy over because the guy's yelling. I guess that's how. I heard him over the music. And he said, what'd you say about my Jesus? And guess what, man? That little imp. That day, the white guy ran faster than the black guys, okay? <laughs> But guess what? I think they probably caught him. All of them just took off. It was like seven, eight, ten guys, right, at least? I mean, a lot of guys. I was like, and I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for mercy for the guy. <laughs> or Lord, whatever. Like, have mercy, man. That guy's, you know, in trouble. But it's amazing because we got to watch our hearts. Listen to what Paul said. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. This is Paul. The chief of sinners knows that God's given grace to him. Remind them to be subject to rulers, that's Christians, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, remembering where we came from. We once were also foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, we were deceived, enslaved, to various lusts, yes we were, and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of 
God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So guys, man, he died for the tax gatherers who were hated. The IRS is nothing compared to what they were back then. And he died for all these folks, and Jesus ministered to them. We need to take this message to heart that, wow, if God saved Paul, of course he wants to save me, save everyone. But not just me, that means the person I'm having a hard time with, he died for too. And he wants me not to malign them, but to be a witness to them and recognize that Christ shed his blood to save them. So don't let your heart grow cold toward, you know, non-believers. Uh, let's grow in love. Let's look at the last verse quickly. Verse 17, the last verse in the study. Now to the king, that's Jesus. I love how Paul writes that. That's almost like insurrectionist type language because Nero's king and Nero's gonna have Paul's head eventually. But he says, no, Jesus king. Now to the king, eternal, because God is from everlasting to everlasting, immortal, immortal. Isn't that the same as eternal? Well, eternal speaks of his eternity from past to the future. Immortal speaks of his incorruptibility, that he can't be corrupted and so forth. Uh, impossible for him to be corrupted. Invisible, not like the pagan gods, which you could see. He's a God that's above all, amen? And he is a God that uh, dwells in unapproachable light, amen? The only God, okay? The only God, uh, which he's the one true God, be honor. We need to honor him, hold him up highly, and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that. And that's the doxology. A doxology is, you hear the term doxology in theology. And a doxology is basically a declaration of praise. Sometimes it's spontaneous. As Paul has several of them. And Paul gives a spontaneous, or, or in his letter, he just breaks out in praise. And that should be what happens in our lives. As we focus on the cross. And you guys, you and I, we all need to give God praise more. The problem is sometimes we get busy in our lives and putting out fires and doing this or that. And we need to stop and give God praise every day. Several times a day we should just break forth and say, thank you, Lord, for giving me life. And keep our focus on him. Amen. In fact, our lives should be like one continuous doxology. Because we're, the mercies are new every morning. There's always reasons to praise him. Amen. And by the way, listen to Paul. Because one reason you were saved was not just to be saved. You were saved to be an example like Paul to others. Amen. To shine your light. You're supposed to be shining your light. Look what God's done to me. Give your testimony. Amen. But look what Paul says over and over again. He says to the praise of his glory. That's why God saved us. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, 12 and 14. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on the beloved. In the end, that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view of the redemption of our own possession, to the praise of his glory. Over and over again, we find out that you're saved as a trophy of God's grace, and your life is supposed to be the praise of God's glory. So non-believers should be able to see that you have been saved, and hear that you're saved, and it should bring praise to God. By way of application, number one, remember the trustworthy saying that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen? If, you, if you're taking notes, you're like, how do I apply this to my life? We've talked about a lot of applying it to our lives already, but just to sum up a lot of the application, remember that he came in the world to save sinners. Amen? Number two, remember, he died for both you and them, not just you and not just them. Get your brain around that, both. Number three, God's grace is greater than any sins that you could ever and have ever committed. Amen? It covers everything. 
Don't wonder if that sin is forgiven in the past that the enemy keeps trying to bring up to you. And praise God because Jesus leaves the 99. He's the good shepherd, amen. And he goes after the one. That's how good he is. Number four, remember you are a trophy of God's grace, a living example of God's grace, living epistles written by God, the ink of God's spirit, read of men, amen. Okay, remember you were, you were, you were, you were saved to showcase God's grace and his love. Okay, and that's important that we get this and that we, we understand that. If you could, and that you're an example. If you could save me, you could save anyone. Number five, share your testimony, okay? Pray and say, Lord, give me words. Help me speak. Help me share my testimony, what you did in my life to others, amen? Number six, live your testimony, right? Salvation, not just give your testimony, but live it before people. Show that God doesn't just save you by his grace, but he restores you. There's salvation, there's restoration, there's transformation, that you're a new creation. Because Paul talks about not just being saved here, but God's put him in the ministry and strengthened him to serve, amen? That you're a new creation. That's very, very important that we get that. As I mentioned, Paul went from the world's greatest persecutor at the time to the greatest proclaimer, amen? The greatest missionary, from the blasphemer to the proclaimer of the gospel. Live your testimony. Number seven, Give God incredible praise he deserves. Amen? Amen? Give him the praise that he deserves. I mean, we should be, look at the doxology. That's verse 17. Paul just doesn't wait till the end of the letter and say, okay, let's praise God. Just breaks forth in praise. Read Ephesians chapter one. He can't just stop by giving God's praise. And when we recognize what the Lord has done for us, can we all please stand? Because the clock says 8.30 up there. And when we recognize what the Lord has done, we don't want to let the rocks cry out. There's no rock that's going to cry out in my place. You should be able to say amen. amen. In fact, we realize that we're such horrible sinners, but God's grace is so good that we should blow the roofs off of this place, man, by praising God. So let's end by giving God praise. Amen. Let's give him thanks. Shout praises to him. Tell him thank you. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Father. We praise your name. You are worthy of praise. Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, hallelujah, eternal, immortal, holy, 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 in Jesus' name. And you know what, you guys? Let's never tire. We're going to be giving God praise forever, so you guys will get used to it. Amen? Why not? Father, bless my brothers and sisters, strengthen them. If anyone doesn't know Jesus, may they recognize what he's done for them, and how he gave his life for them, and rose again, and embrace him as our Lord and Savior now, while there's still time. In Jesus' name, amen. Give some